I want us to focus in particular on verse 9 and 10. But we're going to look at verse 10 first. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, I want to reflect on what it means to be priests. What that means is that you and I are priests. Every single believer is a priest. If you look back to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, you find these words. Actually, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, page 1888. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know that in the book of Exodus, just before the Ten Commandments are given, God speaks to Moses in Exodus 19, and he says that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. There were special priests for them, but... The ideal, which was never fulfilled in the Old Testament, the ideal would be that every one of God's people would be a priest. What do priests do? Priests are a bridge between God and human beings. In fact, the old Roman word, the old Latin word coming from Etruscan tradition is that a pontiff is a bridge builder. A pontiff is a priest. And so the bridge builder, God's ideal, which was only fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, is that every single one of us would be a pontiff, a bridge builder. We build a bridge between humans and God, and God and humans. And we do that fundamentally by prayer and by proclamation. Have you ever thought about that when you go into a restaurant, you're going there as a pontiff, as a bridge builder, to to build a bridge between yourself, I mean, using yourself to build a bridge between human beings and God? Think about waitresses. We oftentimes will witness to a waitress. We did that yesterday at noon uh, on our way here. We stopped somewhere. And the lady came over and said, I see that you're reading the Bible. And I was able to be a bridge builder, a pontiff. So I spoke to her about God, and she told me that she was a Christian. And we asked if we could pray for her. And she said, yes, and I would like to pray for you too. So two pontiffs met a pontiff. Two bridge builders met a bridge builder. So a pontiff is a bridge builder who builds a bridge between human beings and God. That's a distinctively New Testament doctrine. And Peter himself underscores it when he says that we are a royal priesthood. That means we reign through our priestly work. How is that possible? Turning back to Revelation chapter 5. What we, how we reign on the earth, if you look at verse 10, again, Revelation 5:10, page 1919, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign. In one way, it's true that we are reigning on the earth. And how do we reign? Well, if you look up at the top of the page, you see that these 
Elders fall down before the throne, before the Lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. Think about incense. And so the incense ascends before the throne of God. But what is the incense here? Which are the prayers of the saints. So as you and I gather together here as pontiffs, as priests, we worship God. And as we praise Him, and as we petition Him, our prayers ascend before God, and that's how we reign. That's how we rule. And we need to remember that reflecting last week. When we see things that political leaders are doing, and uh, and religious leaders are doing, and all kinds of shenanigans going on, guess what? You've got more power than they have. Because the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it wheresoever he will. And that's an important truth. So you control history. Did you realize that on October 31st, 2021? You, along with other believers throughout the world, control history by your prayers that ascend before the throne of God as incense. So we reign on the earth. Now, thinking about the fact that we're all priests, we're all pontiffs, every single one of us is that, we need to think about one of the fundamental truths of the priesthood of the believer. And and for that, I'd like to ask you to turn with me for a moment Uh, to the book that precedes Revelation, the book of Jude. And look at verse 3. This is a very fundamental and basic truth. Verse 3 of Jude, uh, easily missed, and that is on page 1909. He writes, And Jude was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a son of Mary, as was James Uh, who was martyred when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. What does that mean? That means that we don't have to be contentious But if we're going to do our role as pontiffs, as priests, correctly, we have to fight for the faith. And why is that important? It's important because the faith is easily lost. He's not saying fight for faith. He's saying fight for the faith. He's talking about specific content. He's talking about what we might call doctrine or teaching or theology. And he's saying it's every Christian's obligation to stand up for the faith, the truth, the truth that was once for all given to the saints. Notice that the truth was given to the saints. And if we look at that word throughout Scripture, we see that the saints are simply believers. It's a synonym for being a believer. You're a saint. I'm a saint. Every true believer is a saint. And that faith, that body of truth, that core teaching, that set of doctrines has been once for all delivered to the saints. It's been delivered to you. It belongs to you. The Christian faith belongs to every one of you. And that means you have the right to read it and study it and interpret it 
And this is a very basic truth because St. Paul warned in Acts chapter 20 as he met with the Ephesian elders, and every elder is a bishop, as he met with the Ephesian bishops, he warned them that after he left, savage wolves would come in, not sparing the flock. And then he said this, and even from among your own selves, people will arise speaking perverted things. So you need to understand something. Doctrine is important. Teaching is important. And it's your duty and my duty to stand up for the truth that's been entrusted to you. That's the job of the priest. What happens? Well, what happens is this. As Paul prophesied, as Jesus prophesied, as Peter prophesied, Peter who claimed to be simply an elder, your fellow elder, 1 Peter 5, what happened? The faith began to be distorted. And what happens is that during the 300 years of persecution, when Christianity was an outlaw religion, it went from being underground and a system where there were simply bishops or elders in every congregation making sure things were done right. It evolved into certain elders, certain presbyters becoming elevated over others. And the distinction between an elder and a bishop became established. Whereas in the New Testament, there is no distinction. So it would be like this. It would be like in, say, Texarkana, there would be one super elder, and he would be kind of be the leading elder over all the other elders who might be stretched out everywhere from, uh, from um, anyhow, sorry. And, and so out of that, over 300 years, when Christianity ceased to be persecuted, when the Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan and made Christianity a tolerated religion, and then in 325, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That sounds really great, doesn't it? But something happened at that point. Politicians want to be in charge. And politicians use preachers to help them stay in charge. And so what happens is in 325, Constantine called a meeting of all of the church leaders throughout the Roman Empire. And they met in a place called Nicaea. And what they came up with was the Nicene Creed. And in 381, they added uh, the teaching about the Holy Spirit. And that was well and good. But the trouble is that in order to enforce things as a politician, he made sure that there were five super bishops called patriarchs. The patriarch of Alexandria, Egypt. The patriarch of Jerusalem. Patriarch of Antioch, because that was the great beginning of Gentile Christianity. The patriarch of Rome and the patriarch of Constantinople. So we had five patriarchs coming out of this period of 300 years of being an outlaw religion. Now something very significant happened. 
The first Roman emperor was Caesar Augustus. And he reigned until 14 AD. When he came to power as, as Caesar, as the first real Roman emperor, he took the title of all of those pontiffs and he gave himself this title, Pontifex Maximus, big priest. So the bishop, so the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus Octavian, became the Pontifex Maximus, the supreme boss priest. Now, he wasn't thinking of Christianity at all. He was thinking of that old Etruscan religion and of the bridge builders uh, that, that were the priests, the pagan priests in the city of Rome and thereabout. Now, what happened? Well, when the last Roman emperor came around, and his name was... Romulus Augustus, he stepped down as Roman emperor. He was forced to step down in 476. Now, why am I going into all of this? Because he was the last of the civil Pontifex Maximi. He was the last civil Supreme Pontiff. So, Nature doesn't like vacuums. And what happened? Well, who's going to arbitrate things? The Roman Empire had to have all kinds of officials doing this and doing this on behalf of the Roman Emperor. And so the Bishop of Rome took the title of the secular Roman Emperor. The Bishop of Rome became Pontifex Maximus. He became the boss. That didn't happen in the eastern part of the Roman Empire because there the Roman emperors still ruled until they were destroyed in 1453 uh, by Mehmet II, the great uh, Muslim ruler. But in the west, the Roman emperor was replaced by the bishop of Rome. The Pontifex Maximus. Now we're thinking about this for a moment. I want to get, I don't want to get bogged down in history. But the thing I want to challenge you to do is this. Think about the history of the church from 476 onward in the, in the, rest, in the West. And what you find is the office of what we call the Pope or the Pontiff, the Pontifex Maximus, is a political office. He became the boss. That's why when you see these wars going on with Julius II and others uh, coming out of the Renaissance, you discover popes are just doing what popes have always done. They've ruled with an iron hand over their people. Do you know that if anybody got out of line and he was a king or prince and he didn't do what the pope said, what the pontiff said, what the pontifex maximus said, the pope had the authority to put the man's whole country in interdict. What does that mean? We talk about an interdiction. Well, he would interdict. That meant that the king had no authority. It meant that he used strange methods to force a king to submit, like Gregory at Canossa. And so uh, what he did was, you couldn't have a funeral. Because you couldn't bury the dead. 
because that required the rights of the church. You couldn't have a marriage because that could only be done by priests. And so when a pope put a king under interdict, it was his way of forcing the king to knuckle under. And so that's the story of the papacy. If you look at it from 476 on, you see with growing power, the pope forced people to do what he said and even fought wars. Now some things begin to happen. People say, well, where's any of that in the Bible? And guess what? The Pope began to suppress the Bible to keep people from reading it and certainly never to let it be translated into people's own language. Whereas in the Church of the East, the people always read the Bible in their own language, which was Greek. And there was no opposition in what we call the Eastern Orthodox churches to people reading the Bible. But in the West, the Bible became a closed book. You couldn't read it. You couldn't interpret it. So this is a great truth I want to underscore for you in the little handout under Slogans of the Reformation. If you look there at the church, uh, number 7, The sociological principle of the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. Luther transferred concern from the church triumphant in heaven and the church patient in purgatory to the church militant here on earth and made every Christian under under God a king for himself and a priest for others. Have you ever thought about it? If there'd been no Reformation, if Luther had not nailed those 95 theses on the, on the door of the church at Wittenberg, the country that we have known as the United States would not exist because the United States was founded fundamentally not out of the Southwest, but out of the East on the Eastern seaboard by people in Britain who had thoroughly embraced the idea of the priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a king and a priest and has the right to read the Bible and understand it and interpret it for himself. That liberty of conscience, which we're seeing destroyed before our eyes by the media, that liberty of conscience, that freedom of expression, the idea of being able to say what you believe, That is a core doctrine that comes out of the Reformation. Now, out of that, I have to tell you the story as we're here. We go back to verse 9, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Literally, it's slaughtered. You were slaughtered. You were slaughtered. And with your blood, you purchased men. Listen. The blood, it's so important. I remember I used to sing a lot, and uh, I don't much anymore. But I had a neighbor, and she wanted me to sing in her church. And I was a new Christian then, and uh, had just become a Christian. And so she invited me to come. And since I'm contending this morning for the faith, she was a Christian scientist And she didn't believe the body was real. She didn't believe disease was real. She didn't believe that sin was real. And I was going to sing that song, The Holy City. Last night I lay asleeping, there came a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there. And in there, there's a reference to the cross and to the blood. And she said, oh, oh no, 
Oh no, we can't sing that. And she, had, she picked out a hymn for me to sing, which I sang for them. I didn't understand it. See, the devil hates the blood of Christ because the blood of Christ is what defeats the devil. And he, at the cost of his own blood, has redeemed us. He's purchased us. He's bought us back. You think of, of Gomer uh, in the book of Hosea and how she fell into sin and got sold into slavery. And Hosea bought her back. She's on the auction block and he buys his wife back. We're on the auction block, sold under sin, captive to Satan, and Christ by his blood bought us back. Now, what does that mean that he bought us back? He redeemed us. He purchased us. And for that, I want us to go to Romans uh, for a moment. Romans chapter 1. And I have to tell you a story. Martin Luther was a priest. Martin Luther was a doctor of the church. So he's Dr. Luther. And he was hired to be a professor in Wittenberg. And he studies the Bible. And Luther was something else. If you look here on page 1747, look at verse, verse 17. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith, the righteousness of God. And the very next verse, the wrath of God. So Luther was a student, and he had manuscripts, and he read Greek, and he read Latin, and he read Hebrew. He was a professor, and Luther also had trouble. Luther suffered from constipation. What? What did he say? Luther suffered from constipation. And he was so troubled, he didn't want to waste his time. He would carry manuscripts with him. And he would study while sitting on the throne. Now, here's the great truth. Luther is reading the Bible and studying Paul's letter to the Romans. And he writes and he tells of his experience in the cloica, that is the bathroom, which was heated a little bit and which had a toilet. And he's studying as he's reading his Bible on the toilet. This is true. He tells about it in table talk. And he says this phrase that always frightened him when he read the righteousness of God. All he could see was God is totally righteous and I come short. I'm not what I ought to be. And he was living in fear. He was afraid of death. He's afraid of this. He's afraid of that. He was a man who lived in fear because he was afraid of being condemned by this righteous and holy God who would send him to hell in a heartbeat. But one day, as he's in the cloica, as he's in the bathroom, he reads these words. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, page 1750. But now, a righteousness of God 
from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no, no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And words echoing the book of Revelation. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in the forbearance of God, he left the sins committed before him unpunished. He did this. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Luther had a revelation on the toilet. That's true. That's where he got the revelation. Justification by faith alone. Luther understood at that moment that he was a free man because he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in Him alone. He knew there was nothing he could contribute to his salvation. And this had a revolutionary impact on Luther. He began to teach it. And one day he encountered something. What he encountered was a piece of paper that a poor peasant had bought. This paper was a promise to remit all the sins this person had committed. This person had bought it on behalf of somebody else. What was it? Well, you need to understand, the popes wanted to have big palaces. And so the pope sets about to do a great remodeling program in Rome. And he's building the basilica. And he's got to raise the money. And so he sends people out to sell indulgences. You know, that's an interesting thing, the indulgence. In the doctrine that evolved from the time that Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire and official in 325, so much changed. What had changed was the idea that you and I contribute to our own salvation and the idea that there's some people who are better than others and so the church, those people have excess merit. So in addition to the merit of Christ and the merit of the saints and the merit of the Virgin Mary, Certain people are declared to be saints because they had more merit than they needed. And what do you do with that extra merit? Kind of like when grandpa dies and he leaves you some money. That goes into the treasury of merit. And who has the keys to the treasury of merit? The Pope does. So the Pope had this big bank, if you want to think of it that way, of all the excess good works of people who didn't need them to get into heaven. And he's got it in store and he can dispense it uh, as he chooses to help people. Now it's interesting. The Crusades, which really were of the devil. In the Crusades, Pope Urban II adopted Muhammad's plan of salvation. Did you know that? In the beginning of the Crusades, the Pope, Pope Urban II, it takes Muhammad's plan of salvation and adapts it for himself. What was Muhammad's plan of salvation? How do you know you're going to go to heaven under Muhammad's ideas? You know you're going to go to heaven. You never know if you're good enough. 
You never know if, you're gonna, if you've done something that you're going to go to hell for. But there's one way and one way only you can know you're going to heaven as a Muslim. That's to die in the cause of Islam, protecting the name of the prophet Muhammad and the Quran. This is the only way to know you're going to heaven in Islam, is to die in the cause of Islam. So what does Pope Urban II do? He adopts that, and he gives an indulgence to those who will go on a crusade. And the crusades were wicked and evil. Make no mistake about it. What did the crusaders do? They slaughtered Jews. They slaughtered other Christians. They wreaked all kinds of havoc. And they only held Jerusalem for a short period of time in terms of history. So what happens is the Pope has got this treasury of merit. I can let you get into heaven. And if you'll do this, you'll go on this crusade and fight for me. I'm going to give you an indulgence. So this becomes something that has great precedence. And so the Pope wants to build. Together we build. It's like churches sometimes do fundraising, violating all kinds of biblical principles. So the Pope has this fundraiser. And there is a priest by the name of Tetzel who goes a little beyond, just like salesmen want to go beyond what they really know. And, you know, you can buy this. You can get your loved one out of purgatory now. They're suffering agony in the flames of purgatory now, and you can set them free. Because when the coin, when the copper in the box clings, a soul from hell to heaven springs. And so people in an adjoining bishopric are buying these things for themselves and for others. And when Luther read it, he hit the ceiling. What work of the devil is this? And so he set about as the great theologian in the year 1517. He sets about on the evening before All Saints Day to tack on the, which was like the village billboard, bulletin board, he tacks onto the door the 95 theses. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. I am a Protestant. I make no apology for it because Protestantism is Christianity and Romanism is something else. Let me say it again. I'm a Protestant. I'm not ashamed of a title. Because Protestants believe the gospel. That we're saved by grace alone. Received through faith alone. In Christ alone. And that we look to the Bible and the Bible alone to establish any doctrine. If people don't believe that, I'm not saying they're going to hell. But if people don't believe it... They've got a distorted version of Christianity. And I'll say it again. Roman Catholicism. We're all Catholics. That means the universal church. But Romanism, loyal to the Pope. That's why the Pope could meet with President Biden, one of the most pro-abortion presidents we've ever had, and not discipline him. Because the fundamental obligation of a Roman Catholic is loyalty to the, the Pontifex Maximus. Loyalty to the Pope. You can advocate all kinds of doctrines. You can vote all kinds of ways as a politician. But if you're loyal to the Pope, 
You're a good Roman Catholic. So here I stand, quoting Luther, who is summoned, summoned before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor much of an empire, someone once said. And there he stands, and he's challenged. Did you write these things? And he's accused. We need an answer now. And Luther's in great distress because he knows what he's facing. And so he gives his response. This is after October 31st, 1517. He says, unless I can be shown from the scriptures, I cannot, I will not recant, so help me God. Your obligation as a pontiff, as a bridge builder between human beings and God is to be loyal to God and God's word like Luther. Show it to me from the Bible. Because I can tell you this, if you study the doctrines of Rome, they all have a little bit of basis in the Bible, but they've been covered over with so much tradition, so much garbage, so much nonsense that people may hear the gospel in the Mass But it's buried under so much tradition. It's very hard to understand. I want to be a preacher who when I stand before God can say, Lord, I have discharged my obligation. I made people angry. I made people upset. Some people left the church over the years. But I want when I stand before God to be able to hear God say, Bob, you've been faithful to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen. It's so important. Nothing's more important than that. Listen, we're a small church. We're swallowed up by big churches all around. And many of them do preach the gospel. But we want to contend for the faith. We want to teach people the faith. We want them to understand how to be saved and what to rest our assurance on. Because my hope, as with Luther's, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Are you trusting Him and Him alone for salvation today as He's offered in the gospel? God, grant it be so. May we pray. Lord, take my feeble words, the little handout to meditate on this afternoon, and give us to understand why we should never be ashamed of the word Protestant. Because we protest, we contend for the faith once delivered for the saints, which is a faith that rests in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because thou art worthy to receive power and honor and glory and blessing because you were slaughtered and by your blood you have purchased a multitude that no one can number from all of the nations on the face of the earth. God grant us health in the gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen.